Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. Today, we will talk about events in the summer of 1864, especially regarding the Atlanta Campaign and Confederate efforts to break the stranglehold of General Sherman and his three armies as they plunged ever deeper into the Confederate heartland. The costs soon to be incurred would be very dear indeed for both sides. At a glance, it may strike us as irrelevant, or outside the scope of focus for this series. What does Atlanta have to do, after all, with the events of the war and the shoals in the Tennessee Valley? As it turns out, everything. Not only did the strategy in Georgia depend for both sides upon successful control of the Tennessee Valley, with the shoals as a linchpin in that regional network, but also the chain of events now set into motion, with the decisions made that summer, will culminate in the dramatic, stunning climax of the war in the West, with the shoals taking center stage as the setting for this fantastical finale. Although no one at the time, of course, could have known this, but the height of the stakes were known to all the players, and will bring a shade of vital desperate importance to all events from here on out. As the days went by, early in June 1864, General Joseph E. Johnston was becoming increasingly exasperated. As leader of the Confederate Army of Tennessee, he was responsible for protecting the vital railroad hub of Atlanta from the mammoth Federal force commanded by General William Tecumseh Sherman, which was now bearing its full weight down upon him. Since Sherman's offensive began early in May, as the weeks had ticked by, the distance between his army and Atlanta had steadily diminished. General Leonidas Polk, with his Army of Mississippi, had been ordered out of Alabama early in May to join Johnston at the front, but their arrival had been agonizingly slow going. Johnston was eagerly on edge, waiting for the reinforcements. The tenor of his correspondence displays his frustration and growing desperation as he telegraphed, sometimes multiple times a day, urging General Polk to make superhuman haste. Ultimately, the arrival of General Polk and his troops would prove too little too late. By the time Polk's forces had moved across Alabama and joined Johnston in the third week of May, Johnston had already retreated across to the south bank of the Etowah River, near Cartersville, Georgia, with Sherman in hot pursuit, only 30 miles from Atlanta. Although Johnston's retreat may seem inevitable with the hindsight of history, at the time it was rather unexpected. Sherman had anticipated that Johnston would hunker down and give him battle north of the Etowah at a place called Cassville. He recalled in his memoirs the dramatic moment his armies arrived within sight of the entrenched Confederate position. Quote, as night was approaching, I ordered two field batteries to close up at a gallop on some woods which lay between us and the town of Cassville. We could not see the town by reason of these woods, but a high range of hills just back of the town was visible over the treetops. On these hills could be seen fresh-made parapets, and the movements of men against whom I directed the artillery to fire at long range. The stout resistance made by the enemy along our whole front of a couple miles indicated a purpose to fight at Cassville. 
Skirmishing was kept up all night, but when day broke the next morning, May 20th, the enemy was gone, and our cavalry was sent in pursuit. These reported him beyond the Etowah River. End quote. The Confederate withdrawal from Cassville came as a surprise to Sherman, which he could not explain. Amazingly, his memoir recalls a chance encounter he had after the war, which shed some light on Johnston's inexplicable decision, from Johnston himself, no less. I will quote Sherman extensively here, because, frankly, it's a great story, best told by Sherman himself. Quote, I was also convinced that the whole of Polk's corps had joined Johnston from Mississippi, and that he had in hand three full corps, vis-a-vis -vis Hoods, Polk's, and Hardy's, numbering about 60,000 men, and could not then imagine why he had declined battle, and did not learn the real reason till after the war was over, and then from General Johnston himself. In the autumn of 1865, when in command of the military division of the Missouri, I went from St. Louis to Little Rock, Arkansas, and afterward to Memphis. Taking a steamer for Cairo, I found as fellow passengers Generals Johnston and Frank Blair. We were, of course, on the most friendly terms, and on our way up we talked over our battles again, played cards, and questioned each other as to particular parts of our mutual conduct in the game of war. I told Johnston that I had seen his order of preparation in the nature of an address to his army, announcing his purpose to retreat no more, but to accept battle at Cassville. He answered that such was his purpose. Johnston described how he had placed Hood's corps to the right, Polk's in the center, and Hardy's on the left. He said he had ridden over to the ground, given each corps commander his position and orders to throw up parapets during the night, that he was with Hardy on his extreme left as the night closed in, and as Hardy's troops fell back to the position assigned them for the intended battle the next day and that, after giving Hardy some general instructions, he and his staff rode back to Cassville. As he entered the town or village, he met Generals Hood and Polk. Hood inquired of him if he had had anything to eat, and he said no, that he was both hungry and tired, when Hood invited him to go and share a supper which had been prepared for him at a house close by. At the supper, they discussed the chances of the impending battle, which Hood spoke of the ground assigned to him as being infiltrated by our Union artillery, which Johnston disputed, when General Polk chimed in with the remark that General Hood was right, that the cannon shots fired by us at nightfall had infiltrated their general line of battle, and that for this reason he feared they could not hold their men. General Johnston was surprised at this, for he understood General Hood to be one of those who professed to criticize his strategy, contending that, instead of retreating, he should have risked a battle. General Johnston said he was provoked, accusing them of having been in conference with being beaten before battle, and added that he was unwilling to engage in a critical battle with an army so superior to his own in numbers, with two of his three corps commanders dissatisfied with the ground and positions assigned them. He then and there made up his mind to retreat still farther south, to put the Etowah River and the Alatoona Range between us, and he at once gave orders to resume the retrograde movement. 
This was my recollection of the substance of the conversation, of which I made no note at the time, but at a meeting of the Society of the Army of the Cumberland some years after, at Cleveland, Ohio, about 1868, in a short after-dinner speech, I related this conversation, and it got into print. Subsequently, in the spring of 1870, when I was at New Orleans, en route for Texas, General Hood called to see me at the St. Charles Hotel, explained that he had seen my speech reprinted in the newspapers, and gave me his version of the same event, describing the halt at Cassville, the general orders of battle on the ground, and the meeting at supper with Generals Johnston and Polk, when the chances of the battle to be fought the next day were freely and fully discussed. And he stated that he had argued against fighting the battle purely on the defensive, but he had asked General Johnston to permit him with his own corps and part of Polk's to quit their lines and to march rapidly to attack and overwhelm Schofield, who was known to be separated from Thomas by an interval of nearly five miles, claiming that he could have defeated Schofield, and got back to his position in time to meet General Thomas's attack in front. He also stated that he had then contended with Johnston for the offensive-defensive game instead of the pure defensive, as proposed by General Johnston. And he said that it was at this time that General Johnston had taken offense, and that it was for this reason that he had ordered the retreat that night. As subsequent events estranged these two officers, it is very natural that they should now differ on this point. But it was sufficient for us that the rebel army did retreat that night, leaving us masters of all the country above the Etowah River. End quote. Sherman's story alludes to the fact that, by this point, like Bragg before him, Johnston had lost the confidence of his commanders, most notably, and most vociferously, the pugnacious and bellicose General John Bell Hood. Just four days after the retreat across the Etowah, in a message to his troops, Hood said, quote, Your general has pride in the troops he has the honor of commanding, and expects them to be victorious. Death is far preferable to defeat. End quote. Hood's criticism of his commander's propensity for retreat would grow increasingly disquieted, and soon he would be riding to Richmond stirring the pot, fomenting dissatisfaction with the aim of taking Johnston's job. In Johnston's defense, from reading the official records, I personally have come to believe he was fighting Sherman with a distinct and critical disadvantage. Sherman was commander of all federal forces in the West, while Johnston was merely commander of the Army of Tennessee. This had serious and strategic implications, which gravely hindered Johnston's ability to mount a coordinated defense, while Sherman brought to bear a highly organized and cooperative united force. As commander of the military division of the Mississippi, Sherman's only superiors were Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant, who commanded all United States armed forces in the field, and President Lincoln, commander-in-chief. Grant and Sherman were close friends and confidants who had long since earned one another's mutual respect and confidence on and off the battlefield. Owing to their previous strategic planning meetings, Sherman and Grant were in perfect sync about each other's respective tasks in the campaign of 1864, and Sherman enjoyed virtually 
unlimited discretionary authority within his command as a means to that end. And Lincoln, for his part, humbly deferred to Sherman's expertise in virtually all military matters. For example, back on the 4th of May, when Lincoln wrote to Sherman, quote, an imploring appeal in behalf of citizens, end quote, asking him to rescind one of his orders that was causing undue hardship to the people of Tennessee, Lincoln concluded meekly, quote, this is in no sense an order, nor is it even a request, that you will do anything which in the least shall be a drawback upon your military operations, end quote. In effect, every federal soldier west of the Appalachians, from major generals down to officers, soldiers, orderlies, and teamsters, answered to William Tecumseh Sherman. As such, Sherman enjoyed unilateral control of their movements and dispositions, which enabled him to launch and direct a singular cohesive strategy in the field. As we've seen already, Sherman had the authority to pour all available divisions out of the Mississippi Valley through North Alabama into Georgia at Johnston's front and place them where he saw fit. In a word, Sherman was the boss. Johnston, on the other hand, was merely the commander of an army, not the army. As head of the Army of Tennessee, he held equal rank and authority with Leonidas Polk, who commanded the Army of Mississippi. It was ultimately at Polk's discretion where his forces went and what his strategy was, unless he received positive orders to the contrary directly from Richmond. The consequence was that, as Johnston faced off against Sherman's overwhelming force at his front at the beginning of May 1864, he was obliged to either ask Richmond to order the movements which would enable his defensive strategy from the respective commanders, or to write to the commanders asking them, not ordering them, to come to his aid, both of which Johnston did. Then, even after Polk joined Johnston's army, Stephen D. Lee remained as commander of Confederate forces in Alabama and Mississippi. Johnston may have had the authority to give orders in Georgia, but not in Alabama or Mississippi. For that, he had to ask Richmond to issue orders or ask Stephen D. Lee to personally acquiesce, which took time. Time he simply did not have. As a result of his all-encompassing authority, Sherman could make quick decisions in the moment as the circumstances, nuances, and exigencies of each situation demanded, whereas Johnston could only ask Richmond or Lee to comply with his suggestion and wait for a response, all the while being assailed by Sherman. If Sherman wanted McPherson or Thomas to take their armies here or there, he could simply order them to do so, and he certainly didn't have to ask Washington to issue the orders for him. But Johnston, who was only one among equals, had no such authority, and as a consequence could not hope to enact the same caliber of unified strategy as Sherman. To illustrate this fact, I submit the following examples. After retreating across the Etowah, Johnston became aware of the Federals' increasingly extended and relatively undefended supply line back to Chattanooga, and he surmised that a cavalry raid might disrupt Sherman's operations long enough to give his own forces a chance to catch their breath and assume the offensive. His own cavalry were too busy on the front, however, and so he wished to draw cavalry away from the West to go on this mission. The only trouble was that this was Major General S.D. Lee's authority. 
Johnston wrote to Lee directly on June 3rd, quote, If you can throw Chalmers and the cavalry brigade that you report as at Blue Mountain rapidly between Chattanooga and the railroad crossing of the Etowah, it may produce great results. That line is thinly guarded and Sherman's supplies deficient, end quote. Ironically, the same day, General Bragg telegraphed Johnston from Richmond telling him not to worry about reinforcements constantly to Sherman's army arriving at his front, that his own reinforcements now on the way from S.D. Lee and Forrest would, quote, more than counterbalance, end quote. Johnston responded tersely, quote, I have no knowledge of any assistance now on the way from S.D. Lee and Forrest. Please inform me what movements of these forces are being made, end quote. Despite Bragg's assurances, more than a week later, Johnston was still begging for Stephen D. Lee to send cavalry into Georgia to break up the railroad and turn Sherman's attention away from his unrelenting assault. Quote, I have urged General S.D. Lee to send his cavalry at once to break the railroad between Dalton and the Etowah. If you agree with me in the opinion that it can at this time render no service in Mississippi to be compared to this, I suggest that you give him orders. End quote. Johnston's most important strategic device seems to have been his vocabulary, which was now also reaching his limits. Having urged and suggested, at 7 p.m. on June 13th, he wrote to Richmond, quote, I earnestly suggest that Major General Forrest be ordered to take such parts as he may select of the commands of Pillow, Chalmers, and Roddy, all in eastern Alabama, and operate on the enemy's rear between his army and Dalton, end quote. Having tried urging and suggesting, Johnston gave earnestly suggesting a try. The lack of strategic unity and the multiplicity of different equal-ranking commanders, naturally enough, meant that generals didn't always see eye to eye on what was the most important strategic objective at any given moment. Johnston, of course, felt that repulsing Sherman's coordinated thrust into Georgia was the most important objective in the entire Western theater. Stephen D. Lee, however, naturally enough, saw his own department being left exposed by Polk's withdrawal and placed greater importance on guarding Mississippi and Alabama. Amazingly, Lee had also been asking Johnston for reinforcements. The official records only contain Johnston's response to Lee's request. Quote, it is impossible for me to detach. The best assistance I can give you is to keep the enemy employed here. End quote. At last, General Polk seems to have been persuaded that Forrest's presence was more important in Georgia than in Mississippi, writing to Richmond on June 13th. Quote, I respectfully suggest that General Buford be left in charge of his division of Forrest troops now in North Mississippi, and that General Forrest be ordered to take command of his other division under Chalmers and so much of the force of Pillow and Roddy as he may make available, and operate on the enemy's communications from this point to Chattanooga. End quote. As it happens, this would be one of the final messages Polk would ever send to Richmond. The next day, June 14, 1864, Leonidas Polk, the fighting bishop, was struck by a federal artillery shell and torn nearly in two, killing him instantly. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll return to North Alabama, where all eyes remained on Nathan Bedford Forrest, for very good reason. Please stay with us.
Ultimately, Forrest would not be sent into North Georgia, and Johnston would face Sherman with his own cavalry under command of General Joe Wheeler. Forrest would remain lurking in northeastern Mississippi within striking distance of Middle Tennessee, waiting for the right moment to cross the Tennessee River into Union-held territory and wreak havoc on Sherman by pillaging his lines of supply, which were growing more and more overextended. Forrest was never far out of Sherman's mind, and he certainly didn't underestimate his destructive potential. In this remarkable dispatch to General William Soy Smith, Chief of Cavalry at Nashville, dated June 12th, Sherman instructed him on the importance of being proactive against Forrest and threatened drastic action against the people of the Shoals. Quote, I think the expedition sent from Memphis June 1st has drawn Forrest from his plan of reinforcing Johnston or striking our roads. I think our roads are best covered from Decatur with cavalry in reserve at Pulaski, guarding well Lamb's Ferry and Florence. You may send notice to Florence that if Forrest invades Tennessee from that direction, the town will be burned, and if it occurs, you will remove the inhabitants north of the Ohio River and burn the town and Tuscumbia also. Gunboats will patrol the Tennessee above and below the shoals, and whenever you want a cavalry force to cross at Eastport or Waterloo, you can order up a ferryboat from Paducah, convoyed by a gunboat. Admiral Porter will give it promptness and pleasure if he knows it to be my wish. If Gillum has 4,000 men mounted, he should be south of the Tennessee River in the direction of Columbus, Mississippi, with Decatur to fall back on. He can better protect Tennessee from there than from Nashville. At all events, he should be between Columbia and Florence in motion. Cavalry should not occupy the same camp two successive days, and should habituate their horses to grass and green food. End quote. It is remarkable to realize that even as Sherman led his infamous campaign, tantalizingly close to the city of Atlanta in the summer of 1864, the people of Florence and the Shoals were never too far from his mind, and it was also apparent that they had narrowly avoided Forrest paying them a visit in Middle Tennessee via the Shoals, as Sherman explained to Governor Andrew Johnson on June 13th. Quote, I have no doubt the enemy contemplated that Forrest should enter Tennessee above Florence, at the same time that Morgan slipped into Kentucky, but I think the late rains have rendered the passage of the Tennessee difficult, and Forrest is occupied elsewhere. End quote. Brigadier General Robert Granger, the Union officer left behind to guard North Alabama as the gateway into Middle Tennessee, was not content to wait around at Forrest's mercy to be attacked. From his headquarters, commanding the District of North Alabama from Decatur, Granger cautiously eyed rebel cavalry hovering to the west near the shoals, and contemplated preemptive action. Granger wrote to Nashville on June 16th, explaining that he lacked the forces he deemed necessary to carry out an offensive against the rebel cavalry. Quote, Roddy is now no doubt at Bear Creek, and believed to be in communication with the forces of Forrest, reported there to retard the movements of a federal force moving south into Alabama. As soon as his services can be dispensed with there, it is reported he proposes to cross the river, somewhere between this post and Florence. At least this is the impression with his men. 
Roddy's force is variously estimated from 2,500 to 3,000 men, and that, united with some independent battalions in our front, he can increase it to 4,000. If he should attack our long, thin line, I do not see how I could defend it with the forces now at my disposal. I conceive that our policy is to hunt up the enemy and fight him wherever we find him, not to wait for him at our posts. Roddy, who has been operating in front of this post for some months, has been constantly assailing our picket line or crossing some small forces to attack our unguarded posts. I am satisfied. If I have a small movable force, I can so constantly threaten him that he could not permit his force to be divided. But to do this, I should have mounted men. I had projected an expedition to Cortland before I learned that Roddy had gone to Bear Creek." End quote. The idea was, in other words, that if the Federals took the initiative, it would keep the rebels too occupied to successfully launch a raid north of the Tennessee River to prey upon the railroads. Granger's request did not fall upon deaf ears, and found a sympathetic audience with Major General Russo commanding the Federal stronghold of Nashville. Three days later, on the 19th of June, Rousseau wrote to General Sherman, spelling out the strategy, quote, I ordered Colonel Thurnborough's Tennessee Brigade of Cavalry to report to General Granger at Decatur. Offensive operations from that point will give the enemy something else to do than plot and execute raids against our lines of communication, while it will increase the courage and prowess of our own men and intimidate the enemy. I have always thought the most effective way to guard the Tennessee River was by offensive operations on the other side." Rousseau then took it a step further and lobbied Sherman for the approval of a raid of his own, deeper into the Alabama heartland than ever previously attempted. Quote, I understand that another demonstration will be at once made from Memphis, and if so, Forrest will find enough to do to attend to that. This being so, it would afford me a fine opportunity of paying my long-desired visit to Selma. Roddy's forces are strong along the road from a point within seven miles of Decatur toward Moulton and beyond. With 3,000 men, I could go down and destroy 50 to 100 millions worth of property belonging to the rebel government, including a portion of the important road between Selma and Atlanta." End quote. Sherman had already been well attuned to the strategy of keeping Forrest too occupied, defending himself, than to contemplate launching a raid behind Union lines. An expedition for this purpose, and the one previously alluded to, to which Sherman theorized prevented Forrest from crossing the Tennessee at Florence, had launched from Memphis under command of one General Samuel Sturgis on June 1st. On June 14th, at a place called Bryce's Crossroads, near Baldwin, Mississippi, Forrest thoroughly routed Sturgis's force with great slaughter. It was a disaster and left the entire Union command reeling. Sherman wrote to the Secretary of War the day of the battle, quote, I have just received the news of the defeat of our party sent from Memphis, whose chief object was to hold Forrest there and keep him off our road. Of course it is to be deplored, but we must prepare for all contingencies. I have ordered A.J. Smith not to go to Mobile, but to go out from Memphis and defeat Forrest at all cost, End quote. The repulse at Bryce's crossroads caused the procession of Union forces through North Alabama to momentarily halt, while the Federal Army licked its wounds. 
Sherman wrote to Russo on June 20th, underscoring the necessity of closely watching the shoals for Forrest to make an attempt to cross and to be proactive with keeping the Confederates occupied. Quote, I will leave the brigade of Dodge at Decatur for a short time to wait and see what Forrest will do. I propose to keep him occupied from Memphis. He whipped Sturgis fair and square, and now I will put him against A.J. Smith and Mower and let them try their hand. But you should at all times have things so arranged that you are prepared for his appearance about Florence and Waterloo. You should keep scouts and parties out at all the times to break up his posts in the center to the west and south side of the Tennessee River. End quote. Bryce's crossroads, coupled with the need for a proactive strategy to lure the hotbed of fighting away from the vulnerable federal supply lines, served as the impetus Russo was looking for to have his own plans for a raid given the green light by the big boss, General Sherman. On June 24th, Russo received the go-ahead. Quote, the general commanding thinks quite favorably of the suggestions therein and desires you to instruct General Russo to gradually collect his available force of cavalry and infantry at Pulaski, Athens, and Decatur upon the representation of protecting our roads against Forrest, but really to strike as proposed. End quote. Sherman explained Russo's orders more fully on June 30th. It reads like a symphonic dance of warfare. Quote, the movement that I want you to study and be prepared for is contingent on the fact that General A.J. Smith defeats Forrest or holds him well in check, and after I succeed in making Johnston pass the Chattahoochee River with his army, when I want you in person or to send some good officer with 2,500 good cavalry, well-armed, and a sufficient number of pack mules loaded with ammunition, salt, sugar, and coffee, and some bread or flour, depending on the country for forage, meat, and cornmeal. The party might take two light Rodman guns, with orders, in case of very rapid movements, to cut the wheels, burn the carriages, taking sledges along to break off the trunnions and wedging them in the muzzle. The expeditions should start from Decatur, move slowly to Bluntsville and Asheville, and, if the way is clear, to cross the Coosa at the Ten Islands or the railroad bridge, destroying it after their passage, then move rapidly for Talladega or Oxford, and then for the nearest ford or bridge over the Tallapoosa. That passed, the expedition should move with rapidity on the railroad between Tuskegee and Opelika, breaking up the road and twisting the bars of iron. They should work on that road night and day, doing all the damage toward and including Opelika. If no serious opposition offers, they should threaten Columbus, Georgia, and then turn up the Chattahoochee to join me between Marietta and Atlanta, doing all the mischief possible. No infantry or position should be attacked, and the party should avoid all fighting possible, bearing in mind for their own safety that Pensacola, Rome, the Etowah, and my army are all in our hands. If compelled to make Pensacola, they should leave their horses, embark for New Orleans, and come up round to Nashville again. Study this well, and be prepared to act on order when the time comes. Selma, though important, is more easily defended than the route I have named. End quote. Sherman specified that Rousseau should twist the bars of iron to destroy the railroad. The resulting tangle of unusable steel 
will later become known by the nickname Sherman's Neckties. Nor did the army in North Alabama, for their part, waste time in being idle. From Decatur, small Union detachments struck out to the west and raided Confederate encampments in Lawrence County. Colonel Charles C. Doolittle of the 18th Michigan wrote a brief report of the action in the last week of June 1864. Quote, June 24, 200 men of the 18th Michigan Infantry and two companies of the 9th Ohio Cavalry under Major Hulbred attacked rebel camp at Curtis's Wells on the Moulton Road at 3.30 in the morning. Enemies lost, three killed, six wounded, and one taken prisoner. Our loss, one man killed and four wounded. June 29th, two companies of the 9th Ohio Cavalry and about 800 infantry under Colonel Grower of the 17th New York Veteran Volunteers attacked and partially surprised the camp of Colonel Patterson at Pond Springs, captured one lieutenant and nine men, his wagons, ambulances, camp and garrison equipage, officers' baggage, and a lot of horses and mules, killed and wounded several of the enemy. No loss on our side. Infantry marched 50 miles in 36 hours. End quote. Colonel Doolittle in the 18th Michigan will take center stage in the escalating drama before the year 1864 is out. The uptick in federal activity along the Tennessee following the stunning upset against General Sturgis was noticed at once by General Roddy. On the 22nd of June, Roddy informed General S.D. Lee, quote, The enemy are moving into Decatur in considerable force. Some of them are represented to be 100 days men and others old troops from the Mississippi Army. It is believed that another reinforcement will leave Decatur for Georgia, going the same route traveled by General Blair. One mounted regiment has been scouting as low down as Florence on the north side of the river, and has just returned. There seems to be a considerable number of troops moving all the time toward Georgia. They only stay a short time, generally stopping at Huntsville and Decatur. End quote. Meanwhile, Joe Johnston was becoming noticeably glum in the tone of his dispatches to Richmond. In a rather despondent telegram, dated June 26th, asking for some shred of assistance, he wrote to General Bragg, quote, We are losing from the ranks by sickness some 300 men a day since the heavy rains. The enemy is gradually pressing us back. To defeat his design, it is necessary to break the railroad this side of Dalton. We have not cavalry enough. Can you not send such an expedition from East Tennessee or Mississippi? End quote. The next day, he penned a lengthy letter, verbosely explaining why he had thus far failed to repulse Sherman's steady advance. It is my suspicion he would have found more sympathy from Sherman himself than from Richmond. He reiterated his now-tired refrain that if he just had some cavalry to strike at the railroad, he might stand a chance of stalling Sherman long enough to mount a real defense all of which Bragg responded to the next day tersely, quote, We have no cavalry in East Tennessee, and that in Mississippi is fully occupied by the enemy in superior force. The 4th Georgia Cavalry has this morning been ordered to join you from near Savannah. There is no other force available, End quote. Johnston may not have known, but his time as commander of the Army of Tennessee was quickly running out. On June 28, 1864, 
As Johnston was running out of time, with his back closer and closer to Atlanta, the wealthy North Alabama planter, James Saunders, at his palatial Lawrence County residence called Rocky Hill, wrote a letter to his friend, General Nathan Bedford Forrest, which he thought proper to forward to General S.D. Lee. The subject was Saunders' ideas relating to the long-contemplated cavalry raid across the Tennessee River into Middle Tennessee. Saunders offered the two generals his expertise, as a Shoals area local, regarding how the expedition should take place, writing first to General S.D. Lee, quote, I expressed the opinion that it should not take place until the Tennessee River had fallen, and such a juncture of affairs had occurred that it would be followed, not only by the direct results consequent from it, but by the relief of General Johnston's army. Should the movement now being made from Memphis prove to be a mere demonstration, it seems to me that the time has arrived for a movement across the river. It is now fordable. End quote. Saunders then pointed out with a flush of racist sentiment that the federal flank was weak and garrisoned in many cases by soldiers who were people of color, in addition to the destructibility of the railroad bridges they guarded. Quote, Sherman has left his rear exposed with a very insufficient force of men, and they raw levies or negroes. At the crossing of the railroad over Elk River, for instance, from Athens to Columbia, there are only 50 negroes and four white officers. They rely on a stockade of square logs on each bank. The bridge is dry pine. At Columbia, the railroad bridge with a full corps of builders required 42 days' work to complete it. Over Elk River, on the route from Stevenson to Nashville, is a bridge very lofty and difficult to build. The guard is frequently small. The destruction of these bridges would be of great importance, perhaps more than to seize Nashville, unless we had the means of holding it. End quote. Saunders then elaborated a strategy which, in short time, would prove prophetically influential. Quote, Sherman's army during the low stage of the Cumberland River is no longer solely dependent on the Nashville and Louisville Railroad for supplies, for the railroad from Nashville to the Tennessee River at a point above Fort Henry has been completed. In case we could destroy the depot of supplies at Nashville, the spoiling of this road and the destruction of the bridge over the Harpeth afterward would not only greatly delay the renewal of the supply, but furnish a good route of retreat for a cavalry force after the hornet's nest had been completely aroused, which could either cross the Tennessee below the mouth of Duck River or cross Duck River at some ford about Centerville and, coming via Waynesboro, ford the Tennessee River at seven Mile Island or at Old Georgetown, six miles above the mouth of Bear Creek. There are several places on the Tennessee River where a force hotly pursued by Yankees could throw themselves by fording onto an island where the flanks couldn't be turned and the crossing could be made at leisure. End quote. It is remarkable to realize Saunders employed his intimate knowledge of the very peculiar Tennessee River geography at the Shoals to offer his friend Forrest a leg up over the Yankees in the big-picture struggle to break Sherman's grasp on the rebel heartland now under siege near Atlanta. Saunders concluded with an air of lofty, over-optimistic visions of grand success, quote, 
A controlling idea should be to cross the river at some point near the enemy, say the mouth of Elk River, from which you could suddenly burst upon them, leaving the most westwardly ford for the retreat. Entering too at this point, Decatur would fall into your hands without a direct attack. End quote. To Forrest, Saunders further demonstrated the remarkable clarity of his insight into the grand scheme of military maneuvers, better, I would say, than the high commander Richmond, and the methodical degree to which he observed federal movements. Quote, I am strongly impressed with the idea that the movement from Memphis is not designed to attack you, but to prevent your marching across the Tennessee River in Sherman's rear, or else to reinforce Sherman. The garrison at Decatur have exhibited uncommon activity for several days past, driving in our pickets on all the roads and bringing on some earnest skirmishes. The north bank of the Tennessee has never been picketed so carefully by the enemy as for several days past, and every mile, I understand from scouts, is patrolled actively up and down for a great distance. The Federals are every day looking for you to cross, somewhere between Decatur and Florence. They show themselves every everywhere, and fire at everything across the river. Day before yesterday, they amused themselves by practicing at a fine cow of mine and struck her with three balls. All this bustle shows that they are making a demonstration, and I suspect the movement from Memphis is part of the performance." End quote. Saunders' remarks are very telling for a number of reasons. They demonstrate the active degree to which citizens in the Tennessee Valley carefully observed military operations, not only within the valley, but within the region at large. They show an awareness of the shoals of the Tennessee River as being a critical component of any strategy in assailing the federal stronghold of Middle Tennessee as a means of gaining the upper hand in Georgia. And they show how, with local allies like Saunders, Forrest possessed a decided advantage in navigating the very shaky federal flank in North Alabama to exploit its weakness for his own destructive purposes, which he very soon will quite successfully accomplish. Join us next time as we continue the saga in Georgia we'll see the situation grow increasingly desperate for the Confederates, though not without shockingly costly blows to the Union Army. And we'll see one successful Union raid deep into Alabama and set the stage for another rebel raid into the Federal stronghold of Tennessee as the Shoals returns to prominence in the fateful concluding days of the Civil War in the Western Theater. Thank you so much for joining me.